Super Talk Mississippi media production. Taylor Swift is coming to New Orleans, and Margaritaville Resort Biloxi and Super Talk are giving away a free pair of tickets. For your chance to win, go register now at Margaritaville Resort Biloxi and get your name in for the final drawing from Margaritaville and Super Talk 103.1. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert along with rhino in the element well studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music all right rhino you know there's been a lot of talk about the president's age joe biden well (laughs) michigan democrat Representative uh, Debbie Dingell yesterday said she's sick and tired of the discussion about President Biden's age. She has no concerns about his mental well-being and levying the same allegations against former President Trump. I'm sick and tired of it, she said. Well, then... I would say you need to get with your man there and tell him to quit giving us reasons to be concerned about his age. It, like, happens every day. Uh, Certainly, any time he makes any public appearance or public statements, pretty much that does it. No doubt about it. You know, we hadn't talked in a while about some of the craziness going on in the world of (laughs) wokeology. (laughs) <laughs> the wokeness. What about out there in San Francisco? You can always count on a dose of it from the city by the bay. They just appointed their first non-citizen to serve on the elections commission. Kelly, that makes total sense. Of course it does. Kelly Wong, an immigrant's immigrant rights advocate, Believed to be the first non-citizen appointed to the commission. Believed to be. (laughs) She hopes her appointment is a beacon of hope for other immigrants living in the city. Well, this is what really fascinated with me. uh, Fascinated me, I should say. Is that pretty sure she took the oath there? In her native language, she did not recite it in English. That's comforting, isn't it? Unbelievable. She, of course, Rhino, drew on her lived experience. (laughs) All of these little phrases 
idioms, sayings, etc., they, they're like overused, are they not? Do they like have one little book of all this stuff and it gets passed around no matter what the subject matter is? Lived experiences, of course, is one of the favorites. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Even though I'm fluent in English, she says, I still encounter challenges in navigating a new system. Oh, well, that, again, that's... You're fluent a, in English, then why did you take the oath <laughs> in your home language? I think it was um, either in Cantonese or Mandarin, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, my gosh. Again, I ask, if you're fluent in English, why didn't you take the oath in English? I, I totally agree. I'm looking at a photo of the crowd in attendance there in the courtroom, and it Looks like it's primarily Asian folks. And about half of them have got the obligatory masks on, of course. Oh, my gosh. Now, non-citizens are not totally barred from voting in San Francisco. Not totally. But, uh, But mostly, I guess. I mean, that's just so crazy. That's what's happening. And then you got... In the world of woke, a high school basketball player who identifies as a girl caused injuries in a game, and the opponents forfeited because it's a dude playing basketball with the girls. Is this surprising? But it doesn't matter, right? Because this dude identifies as a girl, and that's all that matters. If you just raise your hand... There's another uh, situation, you know, lots of school districts across the country require their teachers and administrators to refer to students by their preferred name and pronouns, and many of these districts prohibit teachers and administrators from informing their parents about the request from their students. And they literally live double identities. When they're at school, it's a name and it's pronouns. And when they're out of school, around their parents, and in a home setting, it's a different set. And the teachers are rightfully complaining because they said, it's hard enough to keep up with everybody's name and identity and profile without adding, like, multiple to it and all these nutty pronouns that are just made-up words that nobody's ever heard of. They're just letters pieced together. And they think it's funny. It's a, it's a cult. It's a trend. It's, it's, like, hip and groovy, I guess. Oh, no. It's the religion of adolescent stupidity. <laughs> well, the problem is there are a lot of adherents that are not adolescent. They're just stupid. That's so true. That is very true. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> also, our old friend Robert Reich, Reich, as Rush used to say, interesting that no one ever talks about how McDonald's CEO makes $8,536 an hour will raise the price of a burger and fries. Yeah, that's what it is. It's the McDonald's CEO. Except, I know it's uh, shocking, but it's math's wrong. I went and looked up their financial statements. That's not. No. <laughs> I know you're shocked at this. Him being a blithering idiot? No. 
Say it ain't so. <laughs> well, he uh, he doesn't quite make that much. Uh, <laughs> he makes seventeen million dollars a year in cash. Now, that's more than nothing. But running a giant corporation like that, I don't know. I'd say that's underpaid, honestly, dealing with the headaches that he has to deal with on a daily basis. So that comes up to about $2,000 an hour, not the eighty-five thirty-six that Mr. Wright asserts. But here's the, here's the interesting math. He's only off by, what, 400%? Yeah. Here's the interesting math. How many hamburgers do you think Mackey D's sells per hour? Well, they, they kind of quit giving the billions and billions served, and that was in the 90s, so I'm sure it's a bunch. Yeah, 270000 worldwide in an hour. So let's just say we take the CEO's pay away. We pay him zero. And we're going to plow that back into price cuts on hamburgers. Forget the French fries. Just focus on, because he says, Reich does, hamburgers are French fries. That's point zero zero seven <laughs> is what that would amount to. That's how much you would, de- point zero zero seven cents. That's how much you could cut the price for hamburger to offset the CEO's pay. Do you think the people... The trained SEALs that applaud Robert Wright for this have any idea how this math works? I I doubt it. And then they don't ever consider, okay, well, let's say you hired somebody and you paid them less than that. I maintain that the organization would not be nearly as efficiently run as it is today, that you'd have higher prices as a result. That's what these people get paid for. Because the board that keeps them in place, you know what they're looking at, don't you? The old bottom line. So do shareholders. Shame on them. They want a return on that investment. You can't have that. You've got to consider the lived experiences of people who eat hamburgers. Unbelievable. So there's people out there say, well, I might as well go to a fine dining establishment to feed my family on the occasional visit to McDonald's. It's been an unnerving experience. I actually questioned the amount when I got the payment window, only to find out the amount was correct. Yikes. And they think that's because of the CEO's pay. The $17 million, which when you spread it across all the burgers they sell per hour, it's point zero zero seven. They're not good at math, are they? You know, it's either that or they just intentionally try to shield people from it. That they know are lazy and won't go through that little exercise we just did there. Well, birds of a feather tend to flock together, and midwits do love their miserable company. And that's a lot of it right there. I mean, look, we could we could just absolutely welcome ubiquitous bliss, couldn't we, if we just got rid of all the CEOs? Just get rid of all of them. We don't need them. They provide no value. It's just incredible. We got law professor Christopher Green on the program at 1035. We're going to talk about the Trump lawsuits and see how all that works within the constraints of the law. And then Representative Kevin Felsher at 1205. You. Hi. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
We are back in the Element Well studio. One little correction about our guest lineup today that Rhino pointed out to me during the break. We not only have Representative Kevin Felsher at 12.05, but he will be accompanied by Senator Scott Delano and also Donna Eccles, owner of the Eccles Group. And the discussion there will center around this Glock switch legislation that the Mississippi's police chiefs have uh, been encouraging passage of. We'll also just get a general update from the Capitol. So we'll have a trio in here, won't we, Rhino? We haven't done that. A round table. That'll be fun. And, of course, in the next segment, it's Law Professor Christopher Green. We'll talk about the Trump lawsuit, that verdict. And even though on the surface the face amount of the penalty, $355 million dollars, Well, you've also got interest as well. That has already accrued at $100 million, placing the total amount owed over $450 million by the former president. Of course, he's also banned from serving as an officer or on a board for two years of a New York-based company. The attorney general sought permanent permanent barring of the former president, really from having any business activities in the Empire State. Uh, a gross overreach of of law here, in my view. And so I think what we're going to talk to the law professor about is the law itself and just how, how legal is such an action and, and a verdict and uh, What's going to be required in an appeal to uh, remove the requirement that's been handed down to the former president to pay this money? I just, I wonder. So we'll, looking forward to that discussion. But some of the wokeness stuff going on here, I mean, we've seen, uh, right, Rhino, uh, boys playing soccer, I think even, uh, pardon me, volleyball, I think even at the college level where, or maybe it's high school level where, one of the girls on the opposing soccer team was injured, I think, with a concussion due to a spike of the ball by a male who identifies as a female. This stuff is so crazy. It's so insane. And if you even speak up about it, you know, you get ascribed with all these pejoratives. You're a homophobe and you're misogynist and you're anti-trans and all that stuff. No, it's just common sense. I mean, let's let's just be honest, because... As the governor of Arkansas said, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, it's just crazy what it is. Uh, And there's just no limit to it, is there? I mean, like San Francisco appointing a non-citizen to oversee elections. Of course, the place is so awash in liberalism, it probably doesn't matter, honestly. If you're not a far-left loon... Like a Nancy Pelosi who represents a lot of the Bay Area, and then it's it's Barbara Lee running for U.S. Senate that is advocating for also represents that area as a representative, advocating for a fifty dollar an hour minimum wage. Doesn't see, doesn't understand the consequences of that, and is still promoting it. Really is incredible. Should also pass on to you that the uh, the former president Donald Trump 
is uh, is being somewhat accosted by Biden and the Democrats because he has announced, and it's something we've shared before on the program, a 16-week ban on abortion. He seeks a federal law that would ban abortions after 16 weeks. You remember former Vice President Mike Pence when he was a candidate for a president. He, too, wanted to pass a law at the federal level that would ban abortions after 15 weeks. The former president described the six-week ban in Florida as, quote, too harsh. He said he wants to get something done on abortion that would make everyone happy. I don't know exactly what that is, but this is uh, where he stands now. He hasn't really made this a key part of his campaign speech. This is the way the Democrats have. As you know, the Democrats, um, they've made the abortion issue a, a, a very high-profile one, believing that is a way that they could succeed in the upcoming elections. So the president, the former president, has not made that a key point. He's been a bit reluctant, because if you think again about how the president is elected, and you and you look at these so-called swing states, where the attitudes are much more favorable towards some some form of abortion, some access to abortion, not to the extent necessarily that many in the left in this country want, although it's still a, even a minority in the left, which is just unrestricted abortion up up to the end of the gestation period, up to birth, typical live birth period. So we'll see uh, how effective that will be. In the meantime, the Joe Biden is caving <laughs> on his push for electric vehicles because the unions in Michigan, a key swing state, and there are lots of unions there, of course, that build automobiles. It takes far less labor to build an EV than it does a traditional fossil fuels vehicle. And so the president is caving a bit in, shall we say, shifting gears somewhat on EVs because it could result in the loss of a lot of union jobs. So he is conceding somewhat on the tailpipe emission standards, when those have to be achieved. Right now, polls show that uh, the former president, Donald Trump, leads the current president, Joe Biden, in the key swing state of Michigan by about two points. Not a lot. I think this will come down to the wire, and uh, as it has in the last couple of elections somewhat. But it's interesting how stances on these uh, some of these controversial issues such as EVs tend to kind of moderate a bit when you start taking a temperature especially in the swing states that you know are critical to being elected I got to tell you I'm concerned about what's happening in the the swing state of Michigan from a GOP perspective where it looks like it's uh, unraveling a little bit. There's uh, there's just some degree of, of chaos in the state. 
and that has been identified in the in the Republican Party, and it's it's critical. Leadership is in a bit of flux there. Fundraising's way down, and uh, that's the state you got to have, honestly. So the the left is seizing on that, seeing that as a uh, as an opportunity, uh, because in, in pretty much you could argue that you got to have that state to win the election, and uh, both sides know this, so they need to ratchet it up in the state of Michigan on the GOP side. I did hear the former president say this past weekend at a rally, just something to pass on here, that he will always defend Social Security and Medicare. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but if it means don't do anything, that's really not defending it, because those programs are going to crash without some adjustment, just like PERS. It's more got to come in, less got to come out, or a combination of the two. Uh, I've also seen folks on the right just want to pass this out. You may have seen this going around on social media. Something about the the price of gas was like one eighty five, right, or something like that. In in um, in twenty twenty. What does it say, I think, right? Oh, mortgage rates were 2.75%. I think you're seeing that. And it's just a reminder of of where we were during uh, the former president, Donald Trump's final year. I, I just would caution folks about that. First, we're not going back to that in the next four terms. I don't think we'll see a buck 80 gas. I don't see, think we'll see 2.75% mortgage rates. And, in fact, here's the deal. If we do, that's because the economy is absolutely cratering. And the Fed has, uh, to stimulate it, has reduced, cut interest rates dramatically to try to stimulate economic activity. And the fact that the price of gas would plummet so precipitously means that there is a severe decline in economic activity and thus the demand for oil. It was that way in late 2020 because remember where we were, folks, it was the COVID era. And a bunch of people were just sitting at home. And that's what drove uh, those two key dynamics. When we return, it's law professor Christopher Green from the Ole Miss Law School. Stay with us. Attention, adoring fans. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're live today in the Element Well studio. We're pleased to welcome... Christopher Green, a law professor at the Ole Miss Law School. Good to see you again uh, there, Professor. Good to see you, sir. All right, so we get this uh, rather bombshell verdict late last week, ordering the courts in New York, ordering uh, the former president, Donald Trump, to pay $355 million in a civil fraud suit, if you will, plus interest, 
uh, about $100 million of which is already accrued uh, upon handing down the verdict. And then it accrues every day, I believe, until he pays it. He keeps on adding up. And besides that, I believe it also bans him from serving as an officer of any New York corporation for either two or three years, I can't remember. And I think what the attorney general okay, I think what the attorney general sought was permanent banning, and originally, but that's not exactly what uh, Attorney General of New York Letitia James got. So, all right. So, will you unravel this for us, <laughs> Professor? Because nobody was hurt here. I mean, that's my first reaction. My lawyers, through all my business experience, would always talk about well. Who had any damages? Any any time there would be just the slightest, you know, little ruckus coming up, were there any damages? Can you prove, especially economic damages? Because other than that, nobody really has a case. Who got hurt here? Yeah. So this is you have a lot of authority in the government to uh, deal with, uh, you know, supposedly victimless crimes or victimless uh, civil situations. You're right. You know, ordinarily, if you know, if we're dealing with fraud, you've got to show there's a misrepresentation uh, that uh, somebody relied on, that somebody justifiably relied on producing damages. So, if the banks uh, were going to say, "Hey, we would never have made this loan at that interest rate uh, if we had known, um, you know, how how valuable they really were." Um, well, they could, they could, you know, they, they, of course, would have had a justifiable reliance element. They would have had to show. They would have said, well, you know, look, you know, the facts are, you know, pretty open about, you know, what Mar-a-Lago is being used for, how much value there is. Um, but the, yeah, the banks didn't didn't complain. The reason we have this kind of law, it's it's a little bit like the reason we have class action lawsuits. So the idea is, well, some people. Uh, are out there getting victimized by, uh, you know, mistruths, untruths. Um, but they don't, it's not really worth it to, uh, enough to them to sue. So the idea is, okay, let the attorney general come in and represent them. But of course, with money, you know, with, uh, with enough zeros like this, my goodness, the, you know, the banks, you know, had a huge incentive to be able to collect this if they, uh, if they thought they had been damaged, or if they thought the you know, the damage to future the future relationships with Trump was uh, was enough uh, to to make it make it worth their while, but um, you know merely telling you know saying false things. If you, if you just look through 18 U.S. Code, all the criminal statutes we've got. If you look through Title 97 in Mississippi, there's huge, huge, huge numbers of. Uh, crimes that relate to, to lying. So Martha Stewart, she did not go to jail for uh, insider trading. She went to jail for lying to the FBI about insider trading, even though they weren't taken in. You know, she, she tells some story to them. They didn't believe it. They weren't damaged. It didn't produce any effect. But we've got all these statutes that say, well, if you say something false, later people can come in and, and say, uh, say you're going to get going to get dinged for that. Um one element of this that really is kind of wild is the size of the damage. So, uh, what the, uh, the, the, all, all the, you know, this, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, this represents the purported disgorgement of profits. So what they did is they said, well, we think, uh, you would have had to pay this huge, a much huger, a much a higher interest rate. And if you had gotten this, if Trump had gotten the same loan, but, 
had a much uh, higher interest rate and paid that off, uh, he wouldn't have made all these profits. But of course, if the banks had come back to him saying, oh, come on, Mar-a-Lago isn't worth that much. You've got to pay this way higher interest rates. Um, Trump, you know, he wouldn't have taken out that loan. <laughs> he would have gone down the street to another bank and said, well, let's see if I can persuade somebody else. The banks thought it was in, in their interest to, to uh, you know, get this money off the loan, to have a continuing relationship with Trump. Uh, it, I, I think that that that's one of the, the aspects that seems most vulnerable on appeal, that they can say, look, you know, the, the, the world in which we're imagining, in which the banks didn't believe uh, uh, these, these representations about, about the value of all these assets, is not a world in which suddenly they make the loan with a way higher interest rate. Uh, it's a, it, it probably is a world in which he heads down the, the street to another bank. But if, even if, you know, they refuse to do it, he just doesn't do the deal at all. Yeah. So, um, so there's the size of damages, um, the size of dis- the disgorgement remedy. Uh, again, it's not really damages to the state. Uh, but, uh, the size of the disgorgement remedy is, is definitely an issue. And conceivably, you could see the U.S. Supreme Court uh, having some kind of review of the federal issue of the excessive, you know, if this is deemed to be a fine, which it sort of is, it's, you know, something the AG is seeking, uh, on behalf of the public. Uh, you could definitely say it's excessive because, uh, I mean, it's just, you know, the, the the way that they're calculating damages is uh, it strikes me as uh, pretty implausible. I haven't been paying attention to all this, all the, you know, the way they did the trial and whether his lawyers didn't jump up at the right time and say, whoa, 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 with this, you know, this whole differential of, of interest rates isn't the way to, to do damages. So I don't know if they may have waived that. His lawyers have not uh, not looked like the, you know, maybe the you know, the uh, the best lawyers in other respects, but. Uh, it seems like they've got they, certainly some grounds for for appeal in the New York courts or the New York Court of Appeals, and conceivably even to the U.S. Supreme Court. But this money is going to be paid to the state of New York, correct? So, New, New York. Yeah, yeah. How so you think? Have, oh my goodness! If, how do they have yeah. standing to receive four hundred fifty million dollars? I mean, do they have something they point to that said we would have gotten four hundred fifty million dollars more if Mr. Trump had valued his assets in a way that we believe is more accurate? Right. So the state, I mean, if you think, oh, if they had, you know, if the banks had demanded, uh, uh, you know, you know, a higher interest rates, the banks are the ones. Right. That have exactly. That. But this is just, yeah. But this is just generally how it is with criminal law. Uh, if you've got a crime, uh, the state is allowed to come in and uh, assert just the interest of the public. So I mean, the story they're telling is, oh, it's not about the banks. It's about all these other people. Who had to pay higher interest rates, but they didn't have uh, uh, Trump's oh, okay. you know, yeah. relationships with the banks. Right. But the thing is, you know, continuing relationships with business people is itself valuable. And the banks, yeah. you know, you're, if you've got somebody who's who's got a, a, a you know billion dollars, well, obviously they're going to be able to put together deals that other people other people can't. So it really it seems um, seems kind of wild. I mean, fundamentally, I think the thing that's so weird is the mismatch between. Uh, the rationale for these laws, which is the AG steps in for the little guy who's not going to be sue on, suing on his behalf. The fact that the AG is stepping in purportedly on behalf of the the most sophistic, financially sophisticated entities in the world, banks in New York, right? Deutsche uh, Bank, and and saying, oh, you know, we, you know, they they need uh, the special help of the Attorney General. There are in fact people who who do need the special help of the government to come in and 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 litigate things that they they can't afford to but i mean the new york financial sector 
I mean, they're just yeah. absolutely last on the people who need need a need a helping hand from the <laughs> the government to to make these lawsuits. Center of the financial universe, uh, honestly. I mean, in about four blocks uh, up in, up in yeah. Manhattan yeah when did, you think uh, about it. Uh, so, all right. So, are these laws similar laws also in place in other states, such as Mississippi? Could the state of Mississippi Attorney General just decide to up and sue a, a, a business or a business person because they felt like they falsified uh, the value of their assets? Yeah, if you look at, I mean, so if you look at just consumer protection statutes, okay. uh, you have these these civil civil fraud uh, rules. Uh, I think every single state ha- has one. I, I was looking around. There's uh, there's a uh, if you look at a 50 state survey, there's they got kind of somewhat different things about uh, exactly what kind of uh, scienter requirements, so how much intent you have to have uh, before you're subject to yeah. them, uh, how much you know remedies uh, you can get, whether private people can can sue under these and 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 get this disgorgement. But really, this is a feature of our system where you have a huge amount of attorney general and really the DAs as well, huge amount of discretion, and they very rarely have to explain themselves. About the only people that they ever have to explain themselves to are their immediate superiors. So your ADAs uh, have to explain themselves to the DAs, the local DAs. Um, even in our system, it's very, very decentralized. The attorney general can't even demand, uh, except in you know unusual circumstances, I can't even demand an explanation from the DA about why they're going after uh, somebody. So I, I look at it and I think this is uh, uh, an exemplar of the kind of phenomenon that faces uh, really every criminal defendant. Uh, they're mm. subject to you know the DA coming after them. We have these statutes that are way broader than Professor. They I'm be. sorry, we're up against a break. Um, if you can hang around, yeah. we can continue this on the other side of the break. Can you hang with us? Oh, sure, a little right. bit. Yeah, we got Professor Christopher Green. Uh, we're coming right back in the Element Well Studio. Us England. Come on, come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Ole Miss Law Professor Christopher Green. So, Professor, does uh, does this legal term arbitrary and capricious apply in this situation where, uh, let's just say, a politically zealous attorney general targets an individual and says, oh, let's find something here, and, it, and we, found, we found it. We are going to just assert that uh, this individual that we don't particularly like has inflated their assets. And, gee, look here, there's a statute that we can invoke to th- throw them into court and uh, find them guilty and then cause them to pay a bunch of money. I mean, that's what it looks like, Professor, to the average person. Yeah, here. no, the, the, current, the current rules, you know, if you're trying to show – uh, a problem about selective prosecution, you got to show that it's based on some protected class. Okay. So, 
there's no general right to non-arbitrary prosecution <laughs> unless you can show it's based on race, based on religion, based yeah. on based on politics. I mean, Trump could, you know, certainly, you know, in a world where he, he had completely given up his, his political ambitions, you know, it's hard to say that, uh, he, you know, hard to see why he would be uh, – uh, having the New York people come after him, but that's extraordinarily hard to prove. Yeah. Uh, but actually, I mean, arbitrary and capricious, uh, arbitrary and capricious, abuse of discretion. Uh, we have these rules for out of control uh, agencies that we apply, uh, and that's the that's the standard: arbitrary and capricious. Yeah. Um, the biggest, the first big case was uh, the direction of I forty. So I forty, um, uh, it was was just going across Tennessee. And was cutting off uh, the Memphis Zoo from the rest of Overton Park. So you had these people who came in and said, uh, "We are a group citizens to preserve Overton Park." Uh, so this is the in 1971. This is the first big case on uh, what it means to be arbitrary and capricious under the Administrative Procedure Act. And they say uh, you can't just say, "Well, we want the road to be straight." Uh, uh, that's not enough of an explanation. <laughs> you got to give an explanation why it's, uh, you know, why why the transportation benefits are better than you know uh, uh, the cost that you're imposing on Memphis. And then actually, uh, the other other end of I forty. Over at the Biltmore, they they initially were planning exactly the same thing, hanging I forty like going right past the house. Uh, so they 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 moved I forty a little bit, so it's it's kind of on the corner of the Biltmore estate. Anyway, it's the same thing in in, in Memphis. Huh. So one proposal that I've 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 pushed for for years is uh, saying, well, prosecutors should be subject to the same kind of uh, kind of question. If you're doing something that in fact imposes a cost on somebody, and you don't have any explanation, so you know the question. Would you know? Would this uh, prosecution, would this uh, uh, action by the attorney general have happened if it was John Doe, okay, it, it, rather than Donald Trump? I think a prima facie, uh, the way that the attorney general has talked about uh, about Trump suggests, well, you know, you need some kind of explanation. But as a general matter, the prosecutors don't have to keep records about when they uh, consider prosecutions. Once in a while, you'll see explanations of why they don't prosecute people. Uh, you know, so with the, with the vice president and his documents, there is this explanation, but that's really the exception. Very, very rarely do prosecutors ever have to say why they're not prosecuting somebody, and they don't have to. The police don't have to explain why they're not investigating somebody. So you think all the non-investigation decisions that our our government uh, makes, they never explain themselves. They never yeah. keep data on any of this. If they had a requirement to explain themselves. That would produce an incentive uh, that would force them to keep data and, you know, force the, the uh, enforcement of law to be much more regular. And I, I think this would be a huge boon for the rule of law. If you look at prosecutors and you say they look like an out of control uh, agency, put make them to be subject to the same rules we subject to the EPA to. Uh, if they come up with a rule, it can't be arbitrary and capricious, which means they have to have an adequate explanation to show that this is reasoned decision making and it's going to get reviewed by other people than just the prosecutors all right we got a couple um, of minutes so prosecutors say, yeah we're we're we got we have a reason so, but it's just our reason you've persuaded me given that such laws exist across the country that it's unlikely that if this thing gets uh, appealed all the way up to the u.s supreme court that they find the law unconstitutional. So what's the likely path and outcome, in your opinion, here at this point? 
I mean, it, I, I mean, I think the you know there's you know there's certainly going to be an appeal to the New York Court of Appeals, and I mean, the measure of damages is um, really seems uh, it seems like this disgorgement is just way high. I just you, just you, you, it's stipulating that you're going to have exactly the same deals, but the only difference is going to be the interest rate. I mean, it's just kind of classic. Yeah. Not paying attention to uh, to uh, to how people are going to modify their their arrangements in response to a different rule. Before we go, um, what's going to happen? You think it'll make yeah. it to the U.S. Supreme Court eventually? Got about thirty seconds. I think I think they'll there if uh, if Trump Trump loses the court of appeals, he'll certainly have a cert petition on excessive fines. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'd probably bet against against them granting it, but it's it's not inconceivable. Man, well, we'll keep watching it. We always appreciate uh, your, your your insight and your expertise in this subject matter. Uh, law professor Christopher Green from the Ole Miss Law School. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Always great to see you. Take care. We're coming right back, folks. We got Fox News Super Talk News up next. A whole hour of talk, and then we got a trio of guests to talk about this uh, new uh, Glock switch legislation. That's at twelve oh five. Stay with us. And now, and now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's hour two of middays. We are live in the Element Wealth studio. Are you thinking about or planning for a retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. The C Spire text line 601-879-4395. Once again, we want to remind you that you can keep up with all the presidential politics by going to supertalk.fm slash elections, in particular the presidential elections, you'll get a full breakdown of state-by-state results, delegate counts, and more. That's supertalk.fm slash elections. Let's see, the primary in South Carolina, the Republican primary rhino, I believe is scheduled for Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. And then we got primaries here in the great state of Mississippi. That's coming up on March the 12th. And let's see, Super Tuesday, is that the week? Yes, March the 5th, the week prior. Super Tuesday, it's called that because many states have their primaries on that day. We did have a question on the ceasefire text line about when will the nominees be determined. And they get determined when the delegates... Uh, vote for them, for their nominee of choice. And whoever gets the most delegate votes wins. That's in accordance with the rules of the respective Democrat and Republican parties. we got the Republican convention coming up about the middle of July in Milwaukee. And then we've got the Democrat convention that is scheduled 
to occur in the middle of August in Chicago, returning to the old 1968 tumultuous Democrat convention, as I recall growing up. Yes, whoever holds the White House has the later convention. Okay. I didn't, I didn't actually know that. That was the rule. That was the standard. It's kind of tradition. I don't oh. know if there's really a hard and fast rule, but it's the way yeah, it's been for a minute. Yeah, I was going to say, because that's not governed by any law. That's, that is actually orchestrated by the party apparatus. I'm watching uh, Nikki Haley live on the tube here in the studio. She says, I ain't going anywhere. And that's the word, that she's probably going to get beat based on the polls in her own home state, South Carolina. She's going to get beat on Super Tuesday, March the 5th, but she says she's staying in. And the reason she can is because there's a lot of big money behind her, and it's coming from a people who really are not big fans of Mr. Trump. And they're going to continue to stay in and finance her campaign. Other than, otherwise, she'd be out. I mean, the typical candidate would be out. Hey, you got no chance. I'm pulling the plug on my money. But in this case, it's like they're willing to continue to invest just so she can stay out there and be a thorn in Mr. Trump's side. I think they know that she I think a part of them are holding out hope that something happens legally that disqualifies Trump. That's absolutely true. I've seen those reports as well. Thank you. But what for they're not accounting for is if that happens, then all of the campaigns that were suspended would immediately be reinvigorated. That's true. So we go... F- from a two-person field back up to seven or eight. Yeah. Wouldn't that be a circus to behold with a couple of months remaining to the convention? That's really something. But that's what's going on there in uh, presidential politics. Just wanted to to pass that on. Uh, and we talked to, to you already about the Biden administration slowing the shift, shall we say, to electric vehicles, seeing that's not not terribly popular, especially in the state of Michigan, a critical, critical state. By the way, the president won, the former president, Donald Trump, took the state of Michigan in 2016. This is something that I think it's notable because nobody said a word that I recall in the 2016 election about there being any sort of election tampering and fraud and that sort of stuff. So in the state of Michigan, the Delta was 10,000 votes. Without those 10,000 votes, I'm not sure I'd have to do the electoral vote math, Rhino, but I'm not sure if Mr. Trump could have won in 2016. He, it, it's possible he could have because he carried Pennsylvania, but you see where I'm going with this, that the margin is razor thin in the way electoral votes are awarded based on, depending on the state, but in general, whoever gets the most popular vote in the state gets all of the electoral votes. There are a couple of states that do it a little different than that, but in general, those key swing states, that's how it works, winner take all. So 10,000, that ain't a lot. Uh, and I think Mr. Biden won by 100,000 in twenty. Uh, the White House, by the way, is reporting, or there are reports coming out of the White House, that that uh, Joe Biden is very upset with the coverage of his age and unpopularity. And that's reported by a New York Times op-ed writer. Well, duh. You wonder why. I mean, every day you exhibit 
that you lack mental acuity to continue in the role of commander-in-chief, and your policies aren't very popular to boot, well, what do you expect? That's what happens. So there we go. Here at home, as we shared with you earlier, we got a trio coming on at 12.05, Representative Kevin Felsher and Senator Scott Delano, and then Donna Eccles with the Eccles Group. They're going to talk about this Glock switch legislation. This has been suggested by Mississippi police officers. Now, what does this thing do? Kind of converts a a uh, revolver or a handgun into, like, an automatic weapon, something like that? Well, no, a, a Glock is semi-automatic, and this switch you install into the mechanism allows it to fire fully automatic. Okay. Wow. So it just... Hold down on the trigger, just keeps on fire? Yes. Okay. I mean, what an automatic weapon is, essentially. But, all right. And so this is some commercially available apparatus that you can... Not technically. Ah. It's highly illegal according to federal law. Okay. All right. Well, we look forward to talking to the two uh, uh, lawmakers. And well, then... I say highly illegal. I mean, it, you have several hoops you have to jump through to obtain one legally. Okay. Uh, no surprise that Thomas opposes such legislation. My guess is that Thomas believes we should make it legal for anyone to own a stockpile of nuclear weapons and the ability to deliver them. Uh, but I could be wrong. I might be exaggerating a little bit. So the other big uh, stuff going on in the, in the legislature, the, the couple of high-profile issues, of course, uh, maybe three I'll, I'll talk about. we got Medicaid expansion, we've got uh, school choice, and then we've got perhaps some adjustments in the, the formula for funding public schools. I believe the Speaker of the House has indicated that he supports essentially a rework of the formula and maybe uh, shifting away, abandoning the old MAEP formula and moving to something totally different in that regard. Uh, The Medicaid expansion, I do have some, a bit of a a piece of recent, very recent news on that matter, and that's from our our governor, Governor Tate Reeves, who I believe this just occurred not too long ago this morning. He said some in the Mississippi State Capitol still want Obamacare's Medicaid expansion. Most but not all are Democrats. For those wondering how I feel, I offer you the words of President Trump, and and, and that's included in the tweet. And just looking at President Trump's post on Truth Social, which occurred on November 28th of last year, 2023, he says, this is Donald Trump, I don't want to terminate Obamacare. I want to replace it with much better health care. Obamacare sucks. So that's nothing new. The former president was very critical of the law that bears the name of the president who served prior to his term, Obamacare, um, as it is commonly known. He was critical of it uh, back in the 2015-2016 campaign and wanted to make uh, some adjustments to it. There was uh, a bill, I think a lot of people are familiar with it, that would have uh, made some significant changes to 
the law that did not pass. I believe that was in 2017. You remember famously Senator John McCain was the deciding vote, and he had the old thumbs down in the chamber there, did not support it. It should be explained, however, and clarified, that bill did not repeal the Affordable Care Act, not even remotely close. It made some adjustments, kind of amendments around the edges that many thought would have been positive, but it didn't. It was not full repeal. We are coming right back here in the Element Well studio. We've got, once again, Representative Kevin Felscher, Senator Scott Delano, and Donna Eccles on at 12.05 to talk about... And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, now, on to the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio. Little Sammy Hagar. That'll get the blood flowing there, won't it? So Rhino and I are looking uh, for some uh, a new bill, any new bills that uh, would, in fact, authorize expansion of Medicaid in the state of Mississippi. I believe uh, was not the deadline yesterday for that, and I and I think we had reports from both the lieutenant governor and the speaker that indicate we should expect that. So, and they're probably out there. We're just we just hadn't looked yet, but I think we kind of know what to expect here. the uh, The lieutenant governor, of course, in in an interview that he conducted. With our J.T. Mitchell, news director, you can check out the Supertalk website, supertalk.fn, and find that uh, the article on his interview. And in, and in that, uh, what the lieutenant governor indicated is that he uh, supports Medicaid expansion. I mean, I think that's a fair Analysis, wouldn't you, uh, Rhino? Based on his comments in the article, and he and he, what he said was that he uh, supports something that would be kind of modeled after the program, the Medicaid expansion program that was implemented in um, Georgia. So, you know, I, I, I but it, but there's some conflicts in what he said about that. Like, for example. The lieutenant governor uh, said, uh, and I'm going to quote here, it's not just a gift program for people who are not working. These people, talking about who would be eligible for expansion under his proposal, those people, quite frankly, are already covered. This is aimed strictly and solely at working people that are making in that twenty thousand to forty thousand dollar range. Well, okay. Well, there's a couple of things we should point out. There is that Medicaid expansion covers individuals whose household income 
is 138% of the federal poverty level or below. That is what expansion would, in fact, be uh, make those people eligible for uh, coverage. So uh, 138% of the federal poverty level is $20,120 for an individual. And it's based on household income, right? So that means that in doing the eligibility checking, this is what's supposed to happen, and it's easier said than done, that the eligibility checkers slash determinants for any federal assistance or assistance programs that are based on household income, which is virtually all of them, that means you're supposed to add up, aggregate all the income earned by, received by, the people living at that address. So if it's a married couple, or if it's, Thomas likes to say, cohabitants, they're supposed to add up all their pay based on their financial records, and that starts with their tax returns, if they have any, which is a big problem in the state of Mississippi, because a lot of people don't file tax returns. And a lot of people don't have bank accounts, the least banked state in the country. But if it's two in the household, the household income, let's say that they both work, it doesn't really matter. But if it's two, the federal poverty level is $27,000. If it's four, the federal poverty level at 138%, 138%, it's $41,000. So let's say you got a family of four. Just use that as an example. And their income combined maybe both spouses work let's say it's it's a married couple two children both spouses work make forty thousand dollars a year combined that's less than the 41.4 which is 138 percent of the federal poverty level thus they qualify under expansion if they're presently not eligible because they don't fit one of the other coverage groups they're able-bodied adults, and expansion extends the program to able-bodied adults. However, keep this in mind. The children qualify today under the Medicaid or CHIP program because of their income, which, by the way, Rhino, you may look this up for me, the threshold um, on income eligibility to enroll children in Medicaid or the CHIP program, I want to say it's like 250% of the federal poverty level. It's it's higher than the expansion um, requirement, the expansion eligibility level. It's either 200 or 250%. Maybe it's 150%. I don't know, 190%, something like that. I know it's higher than, the, than this group. Uh, but nonetheless, the children currently qualify. So you've got a lot of situations where children are enrolled in Medicaid or CHIP in a household where the parents who are able-bodied do not. Inference from birth to age one may qualify for CHIP if family income is between 194% and 209% of the federal poverty level. I was right in the range there. Children aged one through six may qualify for CHIP if family income is between 143% and 209% of the federal poverty level. All right. But you get the point that that's a higher uh, income eligibility threshold than the expansion of 138. So the only point I'm trying to make is, if you've got a scenario right now today in the state of Mississippi, you've got two parents, and they make less than, what would you say, 209%, depending on the age of the children. But let's just say two, less than 209%, and 
The children can get enrolled in Medicaid or CHIP, but the parents cannot. They don't have access to the Medicaid program. This would make them eligible. Therefore, if their income is below, in this case, 138%, the parents now could get Medicaid under expansion. That's the only point I'm trying to make. So I just want to point that out when the lieutenant governor talks about 20 to 40K range, he would be talking about the adults only in that scenario because the children currently qualify in that scenario. Uh, and then the other thing with respect to, okay, we're going to model this after the Georgia program. And the main reason that I believe he points to that is because um, he supports having a working requirement. And and that's fine. And Georgia does have that. Thirteen states total applied for waivers. That requires a waiver because the, the Medicaid program under federal law, does not impose work requirements. And, in fact, work requirements have been tested by consumer groups, and uh, they've been struck down every time. The courts have said, nope, the law does not require that someone be working or seeking work to qualify for these benefits. Therefore, you can't do it, states, even though the Trump administration granted you such waivers. Georgia's was also granted during the Trump administration. Since Joe Biden was elected, he discontinued. His administration said, no more waivers for work requirements. Not doing it. So if we were to pass this legislation and then submit a waiver, a request for a waiver from CMS, the federal agency that oversees and administers Medicaid, with a work requirement, Unless the Biden administration has a complete 180 reverse change of heart six months leading up to the election, it's not going to get approved. Would it get approved under a Trump administration? Should he be the next president? I guess possibly. Certainly possible. Um, But the consumer groups are going to turn around and sue, and the state of Mississippi is going to be involved in a lawsuit. That's my prediction. And I don't know what's going to happen. If if what happens is based on precedent, they're going to strike it down. But here's the other nuance about the Georgia model. Their expansion is not full expansion. It's kind of expansion light, if you will, and it only covers those whose income is below 100% of the federal poverty level. That's $14,500 a year, what's called the so-called coverage gap. Well, and the only reason I'm pointing that out is because when the lieutenant governor says we want to do it similar to the way Georgia did, but yet we want to cover these people whose income is twenty dollars to $40,000, there's a conflict there, because Georgia's doesn't. It only covers people whose income is less than. as, And it has a work requirement. It's actually pretty hard to work, if you think about it, and make less than $14,000 a year. I mean, you can, if you work sort of part-time, honestly, not a 40-hour week, and that's about the only people that can qualify. So as a result, Less than 2,000 people have signed up for Medicaid in the state of Georgia in their new Georgia health care expansion program. 2,000. 2,000. And it's estimated there are like 500,000 that would qualify to full expansion. So it, that's 
not really doing a whole lot, honestly. In fact, I guarantee it costs way more on the part of the taxpayers to administer the program than it does to actually cover the patients. Coming right back. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Was that Rhino 1967? Something like that. That's what I'm thinking when I hear that. I feel like uh, 67. Ah, about that summer of love. I feel like I need to don my smock with a Nehru collar, some flowers in the hair, bushy mustache, <laughs> big old sideburns, flip flops, bell bottoms, and incense. <laughs> oh my gosh. The young bloods. All right. So back in the Element Well studio. So you may have heard on the soundbite on our news during the break, uh, some of you, that Representative Clay Manziel was talking about what appears to be a bill which would expand Medicaid being introduced today down there at the Capitol. They're going to get all the details on that, <clears throat> what is being proposed. I'm likely to head down there after the show here and see what's up with that. I know the House gavels in at uh, 2 o'clock. So uh, we had someone on the ceasefire text line that said Obamacare isn't affordable either. Applied the other day, $600 a month, 52-year-old male, and said he had Medicaid up until now. Was a family of five, but I'm separated. I don't qualify for Medicaid because, that's right, I'm the only one living in my house, even though I am still supporting my four dependents 100%. I guess I'll have to go without. Yeah, that's you're right, uh, David. That's, that's the way it works, that um, you're, those that are still in your household, your children and so forth, you said they had Medicaid. That's what I was talking about. Um, I'm not really sure how you qualified for it, honestly. In the past, if you're an able-bodied adult, you could have qualified as a caretaker, perhaps. And that is uh, available to those with an extremely low income. And I, I don't know what your income is. But you said what doesn't add up is that you said you checked out coverage in the exchanges, the ACA exchanges, and that it was 600 bucks a month, well, man, that's $7,200 a year. I mean, typical individual coverage in Mississippi, depending on the plan you choose, between eight and 9000 I'm a little surprised at that if you're applying the subsidies, the, the premium tax credits available in the ACA exchanges, which are available um, 
there's it's on a sliding scale. It limits your cost of premiums to 8.5% of your gross household income. And based on the Inflation Reduction Act, you don't um, you don't fall off what's called the subsidy cliff once your income reaches or exceeds 400% of the federal poverty level. You're still available. Uh, you, you still uh, have coverage available, even subsidized. It just cannot exceed 8.5% of uh, your household income. So, and that's the way the subsidies are calculated. It's not like, okay, you go buy coverage, here's so much money towards that. It's like, okay, what's your household income? Let's just say for argument's sake that um, that's $20,000. Then you cannot pay more than 8.5%, although at $20,000 it's actually zero cost premium. So it's a sliding scale. But if let's say you're 400% of the federal poverty level, which is, what, roughly $66,000, then coverage cannot exceed 8.5% of that. What does that put it at, Rhino? About 5500 bucks or so, 8.5% of, of um, sixty-six, $7,000, $68,000, somewhere in that range. You see where I'm going with that. And so you're, the, the government pays, um, they, they pay the, the, all the cost above the amount calculated, the 8.5% times your household income, Whatever that number is, that's the most you have to pay. You're responsible for the rest of it. That's at the highest income levels where you're eligible for uh, coverage in the exchange. It's a sliding scale starts at what, like 2%, 2, 3, 4, 6, 8, just based on your income range is kind of the way it's based. So 8.5% of 66000 is 5610 Okay, so I was right in there. Um, the $467.50 a month. Okay. So, and what what someone here on text line is saying is that there uh, that would it would be six hundred bucks a month. So that means they're making more than four hundred percent of the federal poverty level if they if they did that right. But I will admit now it's not evident that these premium subsidies are available, and that's the way it's going to work out. Uh, and it and it's um, it can be a little complicated. You kind of need somebody to help you navigate through that. There are third-party companies that do that, as a matter of fact. They'll help you with your coverage in the ACA exchanges, and they're called navigators. Originally, they had a uh, – you remember there was money in the law that paid people that worked for the government called Obamacare navigators. Yeah, they'd set up in the walkway at the local Walmart. That's it. And you and Same they would, way the tax people do now. That's exactly right. That's, that's right. So, nonetheless, just it may have been a little bit more than you wanted, but that's how it works. So, and, and here's what happens, and this is a concern about those who don't want to expand Medicaid. So, right now, you can get coverage if your income is below 150 percent of the federal poverty level. You can get premium-free, zero-cost premium coverage in the ACA exchanges as of Joe Biden signing the Inflation Reduction Act. Actually, it was as of the American Rescue Plan, they made it permanent in the Inflation Reduction Act. It was temporary in the American Rescue Plan. Going back to March 21 of 21, that's been available. Um, and so you can get zero-cost premiums in exchanges. However, you still have an out-of-pocket cost responsibility. But that is too limited with what's called cost-sharing reduction, CSRs to, I think it's 3,100, 3,400, something like that. I talk about all this, by the way, if you're interested 
and really getting into the weeds in the article that I wrote at the Supertalk FM website. I go through all those those details. So that's available now. But honestly, to a person making $20,000 a year, having to cover that $3,100, $3,500, whatever it is, 300 bucks a month, that's a tall order. If Medicaid were made available to that income range, they wouldn't have any out-of-pocket costs. They're very small, very, very little, nominal. And, of course, zero-cost premiums. So the concern of opponents of Medicaid expansion is, well, these people, upon Medicaid being expanding and having access to zero-cost premiums and virtually zero-cost out-of-pocket, they would, they would drop their private coverage they obtained at the exchanges, and they'd move over there. And, in fact, in accordance with law, if someone applies for um, coverage in the exchanges and they're qualified for Medicaid under expansion, they're not they're directed to Medicaid. They're not granted the ability to purchase subsidized coverage in the exchanges. And the and the logic behind that is because it's cheaper for the federal government to cover them under Medicaid than it is to cover the cost of their premiums. Um, on the ACA exchanges. The problem to the state is that the state's 10% portion of Medicaid would come into play, whereas the state does not bear the cost of any of the subsidy premiums, subsidized premiums in the ACA exchanges. However, if and this is where you get on to all these complicated what if this and that and the other stuff, which is why I think we ought to put the brakes on this and have a, a, a really meaningful, deep discussion uh, about this issue. Uh, however, the hospitals in Mississippi, going back years ago, offered to cover the state's portion, the 10% portion. By the way, the 90-10 only applies to expansion. That goes back to the original ACA law in 2010. It started out as 100%, then 95%, and then it settled at 90 It's been that way for Oh, I think seven years, eight years. But that's different than standard Medicaid, where the the federal match is based on the per capita income in Mississippi. I think right now that's about 75, 77%. States got the other 23, 24. By the way, that 23 or 24% of the state's portion is just under a billion dollars a year to state taxpayers. Um, With the ACA, there is no cost to the state. So the point is that, that opponents share a concern on is that, well, people would drop their subsidized coverage in exchanges, and they would shift over and, and uh, apply for and enroll in Medicaid, in which case the state would have a cost, except if the hospitals are willing to bear that cost, just as they did with the payment reform waiver that the state applied for and was received, that the governor championed back in September, October last year, same thing. No cost to the state. I don't know where the hospital association stands on that now because there's been some some tumult in the hospital association. Many of the uh, major members have, have left the association. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Hi. You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
back in the Element Well studio. The brakes have been on for 10 years. Why hasn't it been studied before now? What I'm not exactly sure what they're talking about there, Rhino. I know we were just talking about Medicaid expansion. And I think they're talking about Medicaid expansion. I'm not sure what they mean by the brakes have been on. Brakes on what exactly? Uh, it hasn't been expanded. Okay. Yes, yeah, I've thought that might be the case. That's right. It's been available since 2014. I, I should um, share. I may have before, and I think I have with you. I actually did a split-screen debate. You remember me talking about that before. And that was in 2013, 2013, Mississippi Public Television. I was asked by a policy organization in the state um, to debate um, on behalf of Medicaid expansion opponents. And uh, the other person in the debate was a proponent. A uh, just kind of a, a lawyer, a local lawyer, an activist, if you will, a a, a, um, a Democrat, and my main message in that debate was uh, that I thought we ought to instead of just accept just bare bones face value expansion, because because you got to think, see, the law was passed in ten, and and expansion wasn't available until fourteen. There, there's a lot of work to to be completed before that. Today there are 40 states, and they kind of came about little by little. Today there are 40 states, 10 have, and it looks like Alabama's poised to pass, Kansas is poised to pass. I wouldn't be surprised if um, Georgia just dumps their little expansion light and fully expands, South Carolina as well. Um, but my message then was we should apply for a waiver for a Medicaid block grant. Rather than having to operate Medicaid in accordance with these ridiculous, expansive federal guidelines. I mean, Rhino, you know this. Operating Medicaid as both a prov- mainly as a provider and then as, as the state Medicaid department, what you're essentially doing is trying to operate in accordance with a whole bunch of law. That's really what it boils down to. Now, and on that basis, you know, you could say when Thomas says, well, it's just socialism. Well, to a great extent, that's probably fair because Medicaid is dictated by law. Because the federal government's paying for it. That's the bottom line. And so they say, look, we're paying for this. This is how you're going to do it. What I was seeking and a strong proponent of is rather than just me expanding Medicaid to the able-bodied adult population. Just give me a block grant. And all that really means is let's sort of calculate what you think the costs are going to be to operate. Now, that's a very complex exercise. And the federal government would just send you a block grant based on factors such as they do now with per capita income and all that sort of stuff. And then the state could decide who's eligible. Think about the Dobbs case, which essentially sent that issue of abortion back to the states. Same thing here. Um, And nothing really happened at that point. That's back in 2013 is when I did that split-screen debate on public television. Unfortunately, it has long since been uh, deleted. I'm not sure exactly why, but it's been deleted. I looked for it a couple of years ago, and it's not available out there. But that's that's one way to look at it. And we have some people... 
Uh, yeah, you said put the brakes on it and study it more. And so the reason it hadn't been studied, and, and what I mean, uh, maybe I'm, maybe that's not the proper way to describe it. I, what really, to me, we need to respond to the objections of opponents, I don't even say respond, but to address those, not necessarily resolve them, and then also to uh, up, uh, proponents. I think we need a lot more data. I don't feel like we have sufficient data to really make an, the best informed decision. And um, I haven't talked about what that data is, but I have listed it um, just in my, my personal notes, what I think is necessary to really make a, a better informed decision. Why it had been studied? Because there's just not been any appetite whatsoever to even think about it, even consider it, even debate it, it does appear that that attitude, at least in the Senate and in the House, has changed somewhat. Based on what the governor said earlier today, it does not appear that uh, he has uh, much of an interest in uh, really signing off on a Medicaid expansion bill. But that that's it. Um, Wow, gee, did you just agree with Thomas on something, says Ray in Long Beach? I don't always disagree with Thomas. I think we have kind of a a, a friendly and respectful discourse. Um, but, yeah, mark the time and date down. <laughs> We're coming right back with Representative Kevin Felsher, Senator Scott Delano, and Donna Eccles. And now... And now. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studio. It is midday, Super Talk Mississippi. What you call it, Rhino? A round table is now in our midst here in the Element Well Studio, consisting of Representative Kevin Felsher, Senator Scott Delano, and Donna Eccles, owner of the Eccles Group. So, welcome, folks. Good to see you. Where do we start, Kevin? You want to give us kind of a, an overview of this uh, bill? that I believe the House is going to consider first. Is that right? Kind of the sequence here that um, his, his concerns turning these guns into automatic weapons, machine guns, Glocks, right? That's exactly right. There's what's called a Glock switch or a sear switch that will, um, when inserted, take a semi-automatic handgun that's firing like one round a second or so into a, a machine gun that can fire off about 20 rounds in 2.5 seconds. And we're seeing the devastating effects of that uh, just here recently. We had a gentleman killed, I think, on North State Street, Anthony Davis. And we had a deputy in George County in January killed, uh, Deputy Jeremy Malone. And so these are just two recent um, tragedies that we've suffered because of these switches. So did this come about, uh, Representative Felsher, because law enforcement approached the legislature and said we got to get these things off the street? I believe it was an effort of law enforcement, also our prosecutors. 
and that um, they recognize with no tool from a state level to address this, there's not a whole lot we can do unless the ATF from a federal level wants to take it up. And quite frankly, they're overwhelmed and, and cannot. So yeah. that's kind of the genesis of this bill. Donna, what's your interest here? Yeah, so I'm here representing law enforcement. And the police chiefs, actually it was our Gulfport chief, Adam Cooper, that brought this to our attention this summer. And they were inundated with these Glock switches um, in Gulfport. And as we started talking about it, we found out that this was a, a problem all over the state. So we took the issue to the legislature to ask them to uh, pass this bill that, that mirrors what the federal law does. Senator Delano, what's the uh, the attitude in, in the Senate side about this? I think it's something that we're definitely going to take up, and I, I would expect for it to pass. You know, these switches are made through through the use of a 3D printer that are just about available in every high school in the state now. Um, and we know that it, there have been some places throughout the state where high school printers have been used to print these these devices. And, um, I, and I'll also add on to what Donna has said. Um, I was approached by the ATF, by, by a person within the ATF, several years ago to address some of these issues. And what's important here is that there are federal laws that prevent this, but there are very few federal officers that are able to handle these cases. Hmm. They're usually working on very or much larger cases, and it's the locals that are uh, that have these interactions with these with these type of devices on the street. So what the ATF was asking for was for a state law that would mirror the federal law so that our local jurisdictions and our local prosecutors can prosecute uh, these events. And it's not just limited to just the Glock switch, uh, which I will tell you the bill that has been passed in the House that's going to come over to the Senate um, does is limited to just the Glock switch or what we're calling the Glock switch. Uh, but the ATF's concerns were also on uh, firearms that have had their serial numbers altered in one way or another. And there were a lot of, of hmm. guns that were stolen uh, that were immediately having their serial numbers destroyed on them. Uh, police officers were finding them on the street. And if they wanted to, they were able to take those guns off the street. But technically, if the ATF didn't take it, then the perpetrator or whoever was in possession of that gun could get it back uh, through legal means because we did not have – we still do not have a law uh, on the books that, 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 that prevents that uh, or prevents the possession of a firearm with an altered serial number. So do you feel like, uh, Representative Felcher, are we augmenting federal law with this state legislation or, or are we just kind of restating it? Well, we're, we're definitely augmenting it. But in addition to that, for example, if a youth right now were to be caught with a gun with one of these in it, um, nothing would happen. Yeah. When this bill passes, it will be handled at a felony level still in youth court unless the charges were upgraded to adult. Okay. But there will be a track record. There will be a record of that uh, to follow. So right now, that's an added bonus to this because – Prosecutors are dealing with 12, 13, 14-year-olds who are often in possession of a gun once, twice, three times, but it's not being registered as a felony. This will make it a felony, and this will hopefully allow them to be sent to somewhere like Oakley where they can get some correctional uh, behavior, you know, uh, just, you know, put to them. So. Yeah. So I'm assuming, Donna, that, that from a law enforcement perspective, are, are, are they reporting to you situations where 
uh, they're finding these guns and they're seizing them. Uh, hopefully and fortunately, they hadn't been used yet. Had maybe hadn't been discharged with the switch on them used to, to harm other people and property with the automatic capability. But they're trying to get them off the street. Yeah, so that's a really good question. I know uh, of an example where we had a trooper that was uh, chasing somebody that fled a scene, and we later discovered the gun in the woods, and it had a Glock switch on it. Okay. Uh, there was an episode, two during Mardi Gras in Biloxi where another situation where a suspect pointed a gun at an officer, and it had a Glock switch on it. Fortunately, mm. he didn't pull the trigger. I wanted to piggyback on something that Scott said, too. The reason we're seeing so many of these now is used to people we could only get them people could only get them from overseas mm-hmm. so we weren't seeing as many now with them printing them on 3d printers yeah. they're turning up everywhere well that you know that's i didn't know that was the case senator delano that they were actually producing these manufacturing them if you will through 3d printers i gotta tell you for years i've i've tried to point that out to the gun control advocates that what are you going to do when everybody's got a printer at home? They just print whatever gun they want. I mean, this is a problem that's going to go beyond just Glock switches here. That's exactly right. But let's also let's understand that what we're doing is we're trying to apply a pragmatic approach for yeah. trying to get these very deadly firearms off the street. They are modifying a, a handgun into a killing machine okay and it is it, even we've even we've had a lot of support from uh gun enthusiasts across the, across the state who understand that this is a a very unique situation that we need to address we must address um and it's something that is 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 intended to help law enforcement and prosecutors across the state remove these uh these deadly weapons from from our streets and gerard yeah. You know, just recently it was reported, I think Jackson Police Department is seizing about 15 to 20 of these a month. And the um, the statistics are astronomically going up. I think ATF reported something like a 500% increase in seizure of these in the thousands. So these are proliferating, uh, to Senator Delano's point. Uh, it used to be you were buying them from China and from Mexico, and now uh, you've got uh, reports of kids making them on 3D printers, and they're getting between $100 and $200 a piece street value for them. Mm. So it's it's uh, uh, kind of an industry behind the scenes, so to Absolutely. speak, a dark industry, if you will. Yeah, I, I get that. That's problem. So it, it almost sounds to me like, Donna, that you could have situations where law enforcement would be outgunned. Literally. Without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, this this bill for us is critical to officer safety. Yeah, I mean, you 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 mentioned the situation where someone is is pointing a a, a Glock switch enabled weapon at a law enforcement officer. They pull the pull the trigger. There is high probability that law officer isn't going to make it. And and they won't. I mean, we saw that with Deputy Malone. Um, as soon as he got out on that stop, he did not have a chance to respond. Yeah. Wow, this is incredible. But this, um, but Senator Delano, to your point. This isn't going to stop here. I mean, I realize we something needs to be done here, but surely our legislature is thinking about uh, perhaps something else, maybe to yeah. kind of get our arms around this. We're definitely um, very, very sensitive to the fact that um, Mississippians very, are very much are in tune with their gun rights sure. and wanting pr- to protect them. So that. is the legislature. Yeah. And I think that we've shown that over and over again. Yeah. Um, and I will say that in this bill, the way that it was originally introduced, um, we in- we introduced it in a way 
to it, get the message out that we intend to do this. And then we've also worked with the uh, firearms instructors and firearm the ATF and others across the state to make sure that we provide edits through the process. This is exactly the reason why we have this process. Yeah. We've provided edits. The House has done some. We've got some additionals that we're going to add over on the Senate side. But we want to make sure that we're, there are no unintended consequences. This is this is intended to prevent or try to remove a deadly threat to law enforcement agents that are on the street every single day. That and that and only that. Okay. And we're we're going to continue to work on this process, and um, I look forward to to being able to handle this on the Senate side. Makes sense. If you guys can hang around through the break, when we come back, we can maybe turn our attention to some other matters that you legislators are working on down there. Sure. And I got another question for you. I thought about too, Donna. When we come back. Okay. Stay tuned, folks. We're in the Element Well studio. We're coming right back. The American. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. Back everyone, we're in the Element Well Studio. We got the round table in here. Representative Kevin Felsher, Senator Scott Delano, and Donna Eccles. We're talking about this uh, legislation that uh, would make it more illegal, or certainly enhance the penalties, the crime uh, of owning a Glock switch, or I guess enabling a weapon with a Glock switch that turns it into essentially a fully automatic. Um, handgun. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, one of our regulars, Ben from Madison, says, I'm okay with sensible regulation, but I always worry about slippery slopes when state legislatures present measures that would prohibit a law-abiding citizen from obtaining specific firearms. Before I turn that over to the legislators here, Ben, I can tell you they're both nodding uh, in a yes fashion while I'm reading this. So, Scott, you want to take that? Yeah, absolutely. This is exactly what I was talking about beforehand. We understand that, and we're trying to make sure that everything that we do uh, is is in line with with, and it does not offend legal gun owners. And in fact, there's specific language in here that um, that allows a person who is licensed and it is properly certified to have a semi or an automatic rifle or automatic stamp to be able to own one of these switches it's not a complete outlaw we are following all the federal guidelines for ownership proper ownership of this and i think it's something similar to like a silencer you know there okay. you have to have uh, you have to go through a a particular um, certification process and, and a pathway to be able to own a, a silencer. And that is also what we're trying to do with this bill. We understand the slippery slope. We do not want the legislature messing with our gun rights. And we're probably two of the biggest in the House and the Senate uh, when it comes to that. 
but this is not for that. This is where you're taking a handgun that goes in someone's pocket and you're turning it into a machine gun and you're killing people with it. It's that is very different than a lot of the uh, a lot of the other things that we've approached and what the feds have tried to do in the past. We we're both adamantly opposed to the overreach that we see the federal government trying to do. We think this is a pragmatic approach to help law enforcement officers across the state uh, address an issue that that they're seeing uh, that is in, that is intended to kill public safety officers and that's that was the question i was going to ask you don is that is is that what we're seeing in and just out in the in the public squares that the folks that own these these clock switches that that is the purpose is to just overpower law enforcement or they have some other use for it It, it's strictly to overpower law enforcement um even the i mean these bullets go through their bulletproof vests the the other tragedy that these devices do is because there's so much lack of control over the aim with a Glock switch in it. You can imagine a crowd of people like at any parade or any event like that where you've got a big group of people and because of the lack of control after you pull that trigger the spray of bullets that can go across an entire crowd and innocent people I got you. Are in the way. So, Chris from Past Christiane on the ceasefire text line asks where I was going. I was talking about. So, is there not a law against minors having guns, having guns with serial numbers taken off? I thought there were laws for that already. Where I was going with that is, if we can't enforce the laws we already have, why do we enact new laws? What do you think, Representative Felsher? So, there's a couple things there. Number one. To address the reason why we're enacting a new law is to buttress the federal law that's already there, but quite frankly, they don't have the resources to enforce. What we're hearing from our prosecutors and our law enforcement officers is if we find somebody with one of these, unless the feds take it on, they're walking. They're not going. And in reference to the juveniles with the guns, unfortunately, you know, if you talk to some youth judges, some prosecutors, uh, those youths with the gun are not being charged with the felony. And uh, they can't even, from my understanding, they're not even being sent to Oakley anymore if they have a gun once or twice or even three times. You have to have a felony, and that's not a felony. Gotcha. Um, on the ceasefire tax line, I would much rather our state handle this issue than having the federal government taking the lead on it. That's Chris in New Albany. Uh, you're shaking your head, Absolutely. Senator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think most people would agree that, that the laws are better enforced uh, closer to where the law is broken in situations like this. That, yeah, that I, really I would like for our local law enforcement to be able to deal with this directly and not have to be dependent upon our federal agents to come in and, and do any type of work whatsoever. Uh, the reason why the, and there seems to be a disconnect in the public, the public may think that or some of the public may think that because there's a federal law, there's no need to have a state law. But that's not the case. That's not the fact. The fact is that you have to have a state statute for our local prosecutors to be able to prosecute under for, for these types of crimes. And we, and throughout the legislative process, you will always hear us talking about, it could be about Medicaid, it could be about transportation, but we're always conforming to federal law or conforming to federal code. And this is something where we're having to do this to help with uh, preventing or providing additional public safety and in removing these types of guns and trying to remove these types of guns from the streets. Jeff from Loosedale expresses the concern, says gun control is, is, I guess, what he sees this is as, is a violation of our Second Amendment. Well, I would say to that, 
that you still can have a gun. No one's saying you can't have a gun. We're just saying, you know, if you're going to have a gun, don't alter it into something it's not supposed to be. Your your Glock or, or your handgun in general is not supposed to be a machine gun. And because you have people who are acting nefariously and altering these guns into basically killing machines that can kill a multitude of people, uh, just like the gentleman I mentioned that was killed unintentionally just a few weeks ago in Jackson, uh, but for that Glock switch, perhaps he's still alive because it's not spraying 20, 30 rounds out. So we're having to – you know, it's not like we sought this out, but this is a problem. And if you Google Glock switches throughout the nation, I think recently in Houston, um, one officer was killed and another seriously injured from serving a search warrant on someone with the Glock switch. But just Google it. You'll you'll see where these uh, switches are leading to the deaths of law enforcement officers and our citizens. So one of our listeners is concerned about um, these fake Glock switches, that they're just um, backplates or something like that, to that effect. I'm not familiar with that personally, but the poser backplates is the way they described it. So would, would something that is fake like that, would it also be against the law? Would that, would that violate the law if it really doesn't have that capability of converting that weapon to an automatic one? I would not think so. I would think uh, certainly the discretion of law enforcement, um, they, they would assess that situation and find that if it were not a true Glock switch or sear, that they would not uh, take that to the prosecutor. And if they did, the prosecutor may ultimately uh, decide not to take that on because he's got to talk to 12 different people and convince them that that's a crime. I think they have better things to do than that. So a couple of people, Donna, have questioned, uh, I think, a statement you made about being able to penetrate a bulletproof vest. They don't um, seem to don't don't think to see that that's the case. Is that true or not? Um, that is true. There was a, a report out of Texas about an incident that happened like that. So, and it, it, to be honest, it could be that the vest was an older vest. Yeah. Okay. Mike, there. But um, hey, Donna. Uh, one other thing about this, though, we got to remember this. When you, we're talking about gun advocates, we're yeah. usually talking about someone who is pointing a gun, aiming at a single target, and squeezing a trigger with a single round. And that's the, what we normally do. Professional um, shooters are skilled at being able to to double tap, or you know, you, you train for that kind of stuff. What we're doing here is we're taking that single round, or as we call throwing a round downrange, where they're just slinging guns and, and, and slinging rounds, and we're turning it into a knife. Because when you have 20 rounds coming out in under 2.5 seconds, it doesn't matter how you hold it. They, these criminals know, uh, well, they're not shooters to begin with. They just hold that gun out, and they're just swaying it swinging it back and forth like a sprinkler and that those rounds are coming out of that gun they're it's not discriminating it is hitting anything that's downrange and in a lot of cases um, you, when you have 20 rounds coming across you're much more likely to hit something and this is this is why it's so dangerous for not just police officers but for the public in general and yeah. Gerard I, I just say I'm a lifelong member than are a lifetime member um, I'm a gun advocate, and I, I have a strong uh, Second Amendment voting record. But this is common sense. And our law enforcement officers and our prosecutors are saying we need help, and I think it's our job to help them. Yeah, and, and honestly, um, I'm not an expert on this, and maybe this is for you, Donna, but even if you have a bulletproof vest, I mean, you, you don't have a full body armor suit on, right? I mean, You're right. You, I mean, you could still 
do a lot of damage, if not to to the body, if not um, assassinate somebody, and, essentially. And to your point, sadly, we saw that with the uh, deputy down in George County. That's exactly what happened to him. Because someone said they're a retired cop, and they said the vests aren't aren't uh, they're not buying vests to provide adequate protection. Is the reason these could penetrate. Okay, I guess that's possible, sure. but that still doesn't account for the rest of your body. Right. This subject. Headshots. Yeah. Anything like that. Got it. All right, folks. Appreciate you coming in and explaining this yeah. uh, very uh, complex matter. Thanks a lot. We'll be tracking this legislation. Thanks for having right, us. Thank you, George. You got it. We're coming right back in the Element Wealth Studio. This program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, huge, huge news. Huge, huge, huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk, Mississippi. Well, it's not quite Kokomo weather, but it's, uh, it's getting there. Mid-60s today, I believe. Looks pretty nice out there. Little, little taste of spring. My system says it's 64 and sunny here in central Mississippi. That's a, a welcome change in the weather. So, wow, we got lots and lots of text on this issue. It's, uh, it's one that I felt like would generate a lot of discussion. I certainly appreciate uh, the representative, the senator, and uh, Ms. Eccles for coming in and discussing it. So, uh, you know, there's, it seems like there's a lot of um, text, Rhino, about whether or not these weapons could penetrate a, um, a bulletproof vest, I guess. And well, so, yeah. I mean, if, if the firearms, for example, we're talking about Glocks, we'll use Glocks. Yeah. If the Glock could not penetrate a bulletproof vest in semi-automatic, it's not going to penetrate that same bulletproof vest in fully automatic. The clock switch, as it's known, yeah. simply disengages the trigger mechanism that makes you pull the trigger multiple times for multiple rounds. Okay, It does not increase the weight of the ammunition, the type of the ammunition, or the muzzle velocity. Those are three things that you take into account when determining penetration. Okay. What about... So by installing a Glock switch, you are not making the gun more dangerous to those wearing body armor from the standpoint of penetrating the body armor. Do... do uh, and I'm, I'm asking this. I, I honestly don't know. Do officers typically wear armor that protects the rest of their body besides just the frontal, the vest, the chest area, the torso? Not usually, no. There may be a SWAT team that has... More body armor than the typical bulletproof vest, but that's not standard issue, no. Okay. And is that is that are those other parts of their body not vulnerable to weapons like this? Oh, yeah. But they would be vulnerable to a semi-automatic weapon as well. Okay. Uh, is it fair to say they're more vulnerable because of the, the automatic nature of having these switch-enabled guns? It's debatable because you're more accurate semi-auto than you are full-auto, so the fire down range would be more precise at semi-auto than fully auto i see 
Do uh, officers, do they always wear their bulletproof vests when they're on duty? I think it's suggested. I don't think there's any. I mean, it's, it depends on the department as well. But if you have one, you're going to want to wear one more than likely. Okay. I'm just thinking about the, the typical officer that's patrolling in their in their cruiser, in their vehicle. Are they wearing that vest because they've stopped motorists? Oh, yeah. And, and of course, you come up upon a motorist. I just don't know that all agencies have outfitted all of their officers with one. Okay. I got you. I was trying to understand, you know, the 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 risk here and um, and just some of the text on our ceasefire text line. So, um, yeah, Brian and Gluckstadt says, "Thank you, Rhino. Well explained." Also says, "I'm definitely going back and listening to this segment again. There's no way that different firearms can alter the ballistics of ammunition." Okay, so I, I think that we have, um, I think, answered that question. So, but. You know, so it's law enforcement that sounds like is is um, lobbying for this. They they like to see these things eliminated. I still say that we got even bigger problems ahead with the uh, the advances in three D printing and and the cost coming down to the point where anybody could fabricate almost any weapon they could envision in their home. I mean, that's I think that's coming. I really do, and that will present a huge problem for um, just some sort of reasonable regulation around firearms. And as far as the gun control uh, advocates are concerned, I think it almost completely neutralizes any arguments they have. All the, you know, all the um, all the background checks and all that kind of stuff. What, what the heck difference does that make if you can just do one in your house? So, or, you know, maybe it's a third party that just is, making, producing guns with a third printer, a 3D printer, and making those available to whomever wants to buy it. I mean, it's like the local drug dealer, so to speak. I mean, that's just kind of a a uh, kind of a obscure, behind-the-scenes, veiled economy to a great extent. Same thing could happen here that's going to present, I think, some challenges for law, lawmakers and um the justice system in general, and our safety, potentially, as well. Dan in Hasburg says he respectfully disagrees, says the first round weakened the vest. Anything coming afterwards has an easier path to kill. It's interesting. So does it weaken the entire vest or just the area where it was struck? It would just be the area struck. So it wouldn't weaken the entire vest. So I guess yeah. would that mean then that um, if it is weakened in the uh, around the area of impact that for the the next round to be effective and go all the way through, it'd have to be it'd have to land right close to the original area. Interesting. Uh, Thomas, man, you've sent a book. I mean, it's it's uh, incredible. Jim in the Delta says everything they talked about is already illegal. The laws are already there. But I, my understanding from listening was that they're trying to enhance those laws and also make it make it. Uh, uh, enforcement and acting, I guess, and sentencing uh, based on breaking those laws available to the state justice system because the the Fed. I mean, I think I understood that right. The the Fed is not very efficient and um, doesn't have quite the resources to prosecute all those cases. I mean, they didn't say this specifically, but the, that's that's kind of the impression I got was that you put a little bit more teeth here. 
and uh, and also did they not say that uh, that uh, the penalty would be enhanced to a felony? Is that right? That presently that's not the case, and so that does have some ramifications if it enhances it. Okay. I mean, we already have laws on the books to increase punishment if you have used a firearm in the commission of a crime. So I think it would be easier if this is the the issue they're trying to tackle to simply amend that law to include a stiffer penalty if you use a firearm in the commission of a crime that has been illegally modified. Yeah, that makes sense. On the ceasefire tax line, if anyone, Second Amendment advocate or not, is against keeping illegal, fully auto, automatic weapons out of the hands of juveniles, they're clearly unhinged. This law already exists on the federal level. It's just reciprocated for the purpose of prosecuting these crimes on the state level. That's my understanding as well. It's definitely already a felony to do that to a gun, but I guess... Maybe not for state. We're talking purposes. about minor in possession. I got to double check that. Okay. All right. So, um, sounds like criminals are the people using the Glock switch. How many do you think will quit using them? Criminals do not follow laws. I, I didn't get that that was the purpose of the law. I got the purpose was to strengthen the laws such that the consequences were more severe um, and that hopefully would serve as a deterrent and possibly even cause some folks to to um, receive stiffer penalties and uh, in sentences. That was my understanding of what the purpose was. I totally agree that we need oversight on fully automatic weapons, but being, being fully auto has absolutely no impact on whether it would penetrate the best. I think we've right. I think we've addressed that. What caliber of Glock are we talking about that can penetrate a vest? So I think, again, I think we've totally addressed that ad nauseum there. Can they, these switches, Joe Equipment says, be made adapted for other firearm manufacturers? Is the bill Glock specific or will it apply to all brands? What do you know about that, Rhino? Is it specific to a Glock? I mean, with the right know-how and the right tools at your disposal, you can modify just about any weapon to do something different than it was intended or manufactured for the reason glock switches get so much attention is because it's exceedingly easy to install once you have the part to put on yeah and i mean that certainly doesn't preclude someone from inventing some device right for other manufacturers guns and even uh creating the way to produce those with a 3d printer it doesn't preclude that, but it, it sounds like maybe these are the best candidates. If your if your goal is to convert right a, a handgun to an automatic weapon, sounds like this combination right now is your best option. And I think that's where we are. And I, and I honestly, my guess is that's what law enforcement's telling Donna. That's what we're seeing all over the place. So, uh, and why they've asked it to be addressed. We're going to step aside for a break. We got uh, the final segment of Middays coming up next in the Element Well studio. Also, daylight saving time coming up on March 10th. I'm looking forward to that. Stay with us.
small business. Gerard Gibbert. Going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. Covered a lot of ground here today on middays from matters at the federal level down to health care and Medicaid expansion, the possibility uh, or not thereof here in the state of Mississippi to this fascinating discussion about the Glock switch, which is some device that converts a, a standard Glock firearm into a uh, fully automatic weapon. Uh, handgun. So, and lots of engagement. Really appreciate that. Uh, did want to pass this on. The Congress is, I think, in recess right now. But coming up here next week, March the 1st, end of next week, right? Is uh, March the 1st? Yep. The uh, old federal government runs out of money again. Here we go. What do you think the odds are we're going to get? Bills, funding bills, passed through regular order, which is the reason that Figure the House Kevin McCarthy was removed from his position as Speaker. Friday, March 1st, Agriculture, Energy, Water, Military Construction, VA, Transportation, HUD, all those bills have to be hammered out and passed by March 1st to avoid a government shutdown. And then the second set of bills expires a week later. Commerce, Justice, Science, Defense, Financial Services, General Government, Homeland Security, Interior Environment, Labor, HHS, Legislative Branch, State Foreign Operations. All of those. So right now we're under a continuing resolution, which just keeps the funding at the same level it was. It doesn't really do anything to rein in spending or tackle the debt, etc., so here we go again, and it, it just feels to me like we're headed for another continuing resolution. That's what it looks like. We shall see for sure. So uh, a couple of other questions here on uh, the ceasefire text line. Rhino's been communicating with a few as well. And we certainly uh, appreciate that. Here's one that says an FMJ round would weaken the ceramic chest backplate inserted in a Kevlar vest, but not a steel insert unless steel core bullets are used. Then that would be very bad quickly. As a life member of the NRA, I can't agree with it. I can, I can, positive agree with this bill. It makes common sense. And that's what Representative Felcher said, common sense. So it, it, I would say at this point, appears to have broad support. In the legislature, I would have to believe they've done a little vote counting on that respect. Um, the, uh, the House, I know, is scheduled to gavel in this afternoon at 2 o'clock. I'm going to head on down there and see what's going on. And then uh, I know we're expected to see what the House is thinking about with respect to possible Medicaid expansion, a very high-profile matter. And I know there is a meeting tomorrow I've been asked to speak to that uh, a group from both chambers on the matter and 
I've tried to be as objective as possible uh, on this issue. Uh, I'm certainly no fan of expanding uh, government, which is essentially what we did with the waiver we received, it requested and received back in the fall, $750 million. I mean, you could, you, I guess it depends on how you define expansion. You define expansion on the basis of a new coverage group, of adding more people, or adding to the amount of money being spent on the program, combination. Because we definitely increased the amount of money we're spending and drawing down from the federal government based on the waiver we did receive. And that's that really is, it came about because Medicaid reimburses considerably lower than does Medicare and commercial insurance. I mean, it, and you hear folks that oppose Medicaid say, wow, we, every time there is an encounter that is uh, f- uh, funded by Medicaid, it's done a, at a loss. It's absolutely true that the cost of providing that service by the provider exceeds the amount that Medicaid will reimburse, but it's even exacerbated when the reimbursement's zero. And I honestly believe the focus should be on how do we avoid slash eliminate zero reimbursement. That's what doesn't work. That's what's not sustainable. And it's becoming intensified because, as I've said before, in my view, we keep inventing more care, more therapies, more drugs, more procedures, more treatments. That's the good news. People people get cured more. They live longer. They suffer less. It costs money. We've got this sickle cell, um, I think it's an mRNA treatment that's coming down the pipe that's extremely expensive, and Medicaid is going to approve it, and that means the states are going to have to come up with their share as well. It's going to cost a bunch of money. You know what we hadn't talked about in a while, Rhino, is is elimination of the income tax, and it, it just feels to me like that's getting to be more and more difficult to achieve because of PERS, because of possible Medicaid expansion, if the state has to come up with anything, because of requests from DOTD to take more general fund money, just a host of other issues as well. We're out of here today, back with you tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.